the presumption will be that it is a standard form contract unless you can show otherwise. And that would be by showing that, for example, the freight forwarder doesn't have all the bargaining, all almost the bargaining power. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 303 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, Simone Daniels of NJF Lawyers in Sydney walked you through the unfair contract terms and what makes a contract unfair. In this episode, we will go through a case study a Sydney listener sent in about his client. And then after that, Simone will also discuss with you what the unfair contract term provisions means for you. Think of your engagement letters that you send to your clients. Are these standard form contracts? But before we do all that, let me quickly recap what we discussed last time. To determine whether a contract falls under the unfair contract terms, you ask three questions. Question number one, is the party who makes the claim a small business? To be a small business, you need to have less than 20 employees and an upfront price of less than 300,000 or if for more than 12 months of 1 million. These conditions might change soon, but this is what they are at the moment. 300,000 and less than 20 employees. Sorry, as you already heard in the last episode, the first question is actually not just about small business contracts, but also about consumer contracts. So consumer contracts are, as you know, contracts that are for the provision of goods or services or an interest in land and are with an individual and are wholly or predominantly for personal, household or domestic use. And these consumer contracts also fall under the unfair contract term provisions. And so the first question should actually be, is it a small business contract or a consumer contract? Question number two, is it a standard form contract? The unfair contract term provisions only apply to standard form contracts. So the question is whether you negotiated any of the terms. The presumption is that it is a standard form contract, so the defendant has to prove that it isn't. Question number three, do you pass all three conditions of the three limb test? You pass the three limb test if you answer yes to all of the following. Number one, is there a significant imbalance between the parties? Number two, is holding on to the terms not reasonably necessary to protect legitimate interest? And number three, is holding on to the terms or to a specific term detriment to one of the parties? presumably to you if you try to get protected by the unfair contract terms. If you answer yes to all three questions, so you are a small business, it is a standard form contract and you pass the three limb test, then you are protected by the unfair contract term provisions. So this is what we learned so far. Now to the predicament one of your clients is finding himself in. A listener in Sydney emailed me this case about his client, but let's assume it is your client. So your client is an e-commerce business and enters into a contract with a freight forwarder. The contract stipulates monthly payments over a contract term of five years. After a year, your client and the freight forwarder have a fallout and your client no longer wants to use this freight forwarder. And the freight forwarder says, 
that is fine, you can go, but you still need to pay me for the remaining four years. Can your client get out of this contractual obligation by pointing to the unfair contract term provisions? That is my question to Simone Daniels of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney. I can imagine this. The main question is whether it's a standard form contract or not. You know, the main question is probably how much did they negotiate? Did the freight forwarder just give a pre-printed contract that just had to be signed or was every term negotiated? I can imagine that is the that is the most important question to answer, correct? The presumption will be that it is standard form, a standard form contract unless the freight forwarder can show otherwise. And that would be by showing that, for example, the freight forwarder doesn't have all the bargaining, all or most of the bargaining power, you know, that there was a level of negotiation that occurred that took into account the specific characteristics of the client. So, yes, that would definitely be a key consideration as to whether it would fall under this legislation or not. So the freight forwarder would have to refer to old emails where the e-commerce business and the freight forwarder were negotiating certain rates or terms of the contract or, or or something. If those emails exist, then it wouldn't be a standard form contract. But if the conversation was just over the phone and then in the end, the freight forwarder sent a, a standard contract through that the uh, e-commerce business just signed, then it probably would, would be a standard form contract. So it probably if the negotiations t took place over the phone, then it's probably very difficult for the freight forwarder to prove that terms and conditions were negotiated. The question before you get there is whether the, the client in this situation is a small business or not. We're assuming, yes, that would be a key, you know, starting point as well before we even get to the question of whether it's standard form contract. Yes, I agree. Under the old rules. So if you say un less than 20 employees, I would assume that the answer is yes. But of course, whether the upfront contract price was less than 300,000, that is another That is another question. But under the new rules, of course, it most likely would be less than 100 employees and less than 10 million in turnover. Yeah, we don't have those new rules yet. I sh you know, that that's still, uh, it's been proposed, but it's that we don't, haven't even seen the draft legislation for that yet. Two questions to go back and ask the client. A, did you have less than 20 employees? And I guess the relevant time is when the contract was signed. So at the time the contract was signed, did you have less than 20 employees? And was the upfront cost less than 300,000? I assume that would be the fee paid per year. So the fee for the first year was the fee for the first year less than 300,000? Or since it goes over 12 months, was it more than a million? Yeah, under a million, yeah. So that was that would be the first question. And the second question would be to ask the client, did you negotiate anything or did you just ask about their terms and conditions and then you were sent something that you signed? Correct. Just those two questions or is there a third question that, that the accountant would need to ask his client? I think that uh, those two questions really are going to get you sensibly understanding whether unfair whether this legislation applies at all in the first place i guess once you're under that umbrella it's then a question of looking at the specific terms and how they apply and whether they are actually you know likely to be considered unfair but i think as a starting point those are the questions that i would be asking yes okay and then if the client thinks they have a point then they would have to go to court and get the court to declare the contract as void correct well i i mean Before rushing off to court, I would probably put the, the case to the freight forwarder saying, look, you know, 
it clearly is a covered by the unfair contract terms legislation. This term is unfair, you know, and you make reference to the three tests of unfairness. Therefore, you know, not going to be paying any further fees and you know, try your luck. <laughs> yes. And that actually would be the third question you need to ask after asking the size of the business and also how much was negotiated. The third question would be, is there an unfair a term in there? So is there a significant imbalance? You know, is it reasonably necessary to protect legitimate interest? And is it detriment to one of the persons? The answer to the last question, of course, is yes. But the other two, that would be the third question to ask. And then Before you run to court, you ne negotiate. Making an argument that they this term is unfair in that it effectively prevents the client from an early termination and, and effectively means that they're still paying for goods or services, sorry, services that they're not receiving. You know, the question there is what is the legitimate interest that the freight forwarder is protecting there? This question came up pretty much on point in a recent case where the ACCC took a company called EmployShirt employ shore to court and basically this is a um, business that employ shore um, helps businesses around the country manage their staff and employment contracts and you know disciplinary action against employees that sort of thing it offers a, a, a service and they operate on a subscription model And the reason that I'm raising this is that one of the terms that the ACCC alleged was unfair was that if a client signed up for a certain period of time, weren't able to terminate, there was no provision for them to terminate early and they were effectively needing to pay the full contract price even though they weren't really going to be obtaining any benefit from the contract, you know, still receiving any services. And they were saying that it was unfair. EmployShore in that situation, surprisingly, was actually able to show that it was, that their pricing model and the term relating to early termination was reasonably necessary to protect their legitimate interests because their whole business run off, ran off of a subscription model. In order for that model to work, there needed to be certainty of revenue. They needed to have certainty of resourcing to meet client needs under that subscription model. So you can imagine if If someone subscribes for your service and it's a over the next 12 months, you need a certain level of staff that's going to be on call to answer their queries as issues come up. And so they were provisioning that on sign up of their clients. And they're saying, you know, if we didn't impose, it didn't have a certain time frame in there that people were locked in, that, pardon me, that resourcing would be completely ineffective. The other factor that they raised as part of justifying, you know, why it was reasonably necessary is that a lot of the cost of associated with the contract to them was front loaded. So, you know, there was a lot of cost in signing up the client and, you know, undertaking an initial review of their existing situation. And, you know, they got a lot of value out of that, which had been sort of priced out for the duration of the contract. And so if the client could then turn around and terminate the contract early on, there was a significant gap there in terms of what it was costing EmployShore to sign up clients to their subscription model. So they were saying that it had been, their pricing had been priced accordingly, duration of the contract, which I think is similar to what the freight forwarder would argue in this situation. Yes, yes, that's actually what he argued. He argued what probably many service 
businesses would argue that at the start of the contract, he incurred significant costs setting it up and the remuneration for those upfront setup costs were then spread over the term of the contract. Yes. Yeah. So in the EmployShore case, that was a successful argument on behalf of EmployShore. So the freight forwarder could potentially make that sort of argument, but I guess then it would really come down to, well, if you look at the pricing model and what's happening in the market, uh, you know, does that actually st stack up or not? So it comes down to what competitors do. If this is the only freight forwarder who locks their clients into a five-year contract and everybody else just offers 12-month contracts, then the client probably has a good starting point. If the entire freight forwarding industry is based on five-year contracts or longer, then they would have a weak point. Yeah, yeah. And so now let's look at how the unfair contract term provisions apply to you, to you and me and all of us. I actually think the unfair contract rules will very often apply to accountants and tax agents because we very often send out engagement letters and these engagement letters are usually standard forms where we say who has possession, who has ownership of the work papers and what happens if one party wants to cancel, etc. It's usually a standard contract that we send to every client to sign. So I can imagine that very much would fall under a standard form contract. Hence, the unfair contract terms might be held against us because we do use usually a standard form contracts. Yes, potentially. And I guess then it really comes down to what terms are in your contracts. I mean, for the most part, it's unlikely that your terms are going to not stand up to scrutiny. The reality is that You know, if you've got clients that are that have options elsewhere on better terms, then they may well be taking that, and the, the market will tell you, <laughs> you know, yes. whether they're unfair or not. But yes, it's definitely something to be aware of, and probably worth just you know using this as a prompt to relook at your terms and perhaps even getting them reviewed by a professional in light of the changes that are going to come in. So the unfair contract term provisions are not just something that might affect our clients. It might also affect us with respect to the engagements letters we send out. In the next episode, episode 304, Jeff Steen of Brownright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will talk about property developments with subdivisions. How should you structure a property development that involves subdivision? Let's discuss that next week. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>